0: Hello and welcome to the AK 47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And I am speaking to you from quarantine, essentially. We are sheltering in place here in Philadelphia because of the coronavirus. The last time I actually recorded a podcast was when I was in New Zealand, which was only like two weeks ago, but seems like a completely different world ago from where we are right now. And I have so many thoughts and things that I'd love to talk about because the world is in an unprecedented situation. I hope everybody out there is staying home and staying safe and healthy. It's quite a frightening situation, and I have been trying to teach my classes online. Uh, I'm still teaching this semester, and it's been a very difficult transition, so it's been taking a lot of my time, and I'm afraid I haven't had a moment to spare to dedicate to the podcast, but I wanted to try to get back to some sense of normalcy, and I'm going to read today from a selection of another one of Alexandra Colen'tai's fictional works, a short story called Sisters. Now, like Three Generations, which I read just a little while ago on this podcast, this was another story that got her in a lot of trouble with her Bolshevik colleagues, partially because she is actually rather critical of their inability to help solve some of women's problems in the early years, immediately after the revolution. And Again, I think this is Kollontai deciding to write in a fairly simple way. You know, people have criticized her prose for not being so elegant, but the whole point of her writing these stories, I think, was to try to reach working women who probably wouldn't read political pamphlets or wouldn't read, you know, um, erudite essays about the status of women, but instead might read a short story and through the short story might actually learn something. But before I start reading the story, I did want to make two very quick announcements. The first is that the, because of the quarantine and because the paperback version of the book was supposed to, well did come out on March 3rd, but all events associated with the paperback launch have been canceled, my publisher has decided that for the entire month of April the ebook for Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism will be $2.99 on all platforms. So, whether that's Kindle or Nook or another independent platform that you read your ebooks on, it's only three bucks for the entire month of April, which I think is a pretty great deal. And the other thing that I'm doing, partially to make up for some of the events that I had planned, readings that I had planned that have been canceled, is a new thing called the Quarantine Book Club. I will be on for an hour discussing why women have better sex under socialism on April 6th, which is Monday, from 11 to 12 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So that's California time. If you're on the East Coast of the United States, it's from 2 to 3 o'clock p.m. I will leave a link in the show notes for this podcast episode so that if those of you are interested, you can join through, a, I think it's a Zoom call that you get a code from the guy who's organizing it. He's a, a website designer out in California, and he's done a really great job of putting together this sort of online reading forum for authors who have had all of their events canceled because of the pandemic. So I really encourage you to check out the website. There are lots of other authors on there, really interesting people who are going to be, I think he does two a day. So it's a, it's a really wonderful opportunity to sort of touch base and attend a bunch of literary readings that you might not otherwise be able to do because they're scattered around the country. These are all online. And I think this is a wonderful way to support authors and writers out there who are, you know, really struggling as are so many people around the world right now. These are really frightening times, but I also think that there are times when we can sit around and go back to the books and really read and reassess and think about the way we can build a better world out of the ashes of this one as it sort of falls apart. I feel like it is falling apart. I mean, from where I sit in the United States, they're so, and everywhere, looking at what's happening in Spain and and Italy and... In Germany and especially in Eastern Europe, I have friends in Bulgaria who are telling me that they're essentially almost under something like martial law. In Hungary, Viktor Orban has sort of voted himself unlimited power without a sunset clause. It's a a very aggressive move. I have another student in Lithuania who's very worried that the coronavirus pandemic is creating opportunities for the suppression of civil rights and the democratic gains that that country has made since 1991. So I think there's a, you know, a lot of anxiety out there in the world. And I wish I had, you know, some way to try to assuage some of that, but I don't because I think I'm feeling it too, like everybody else is, we're all in this boat together. And because I'm a writer and because I'm a a scholar, for me, I think the way that I've been dealing with this is to go back to the books and to read. And I'm reading Polanyi right now. I'm going to be reading some old Clifford Geertz essays on ideology that I think are really important. I actually started rereading The Condition of the Working Class in England from Engels in 1844, because I think that that's a really interesting sort of almost ethnographic study of how talking about our problems and expressing The injustice in a society can sometimes be the first step in changing that society. I really believe that. And I believe that social scientists and writers and poets and artists and creators of all types have a sort of responsibility in this moment to reflect the world, not only as it is, not only to express our our fears and anxieties, but also to try to help think about a different world that might come after it, a better world. And I really believe that that's what Alexandra Kollontai was trying to do in her writings in the late teens and early 20s, especially after her experience as commissar of social welfare. She had so many ideas that she wanted to propose and put into practice, but they were practically impossible. And she faced a lot of pushback from not only her colleagues, but also the kind of peasant population of Russia that just wasn't ready for some of the reforms that she was trying to introduce. Revolutions are always really messy. Crises are always really messy. And obviously, as I've said many times on this podcast, after World War One and the Civil War and the famine, Russia was in a really bad state. And I sort of see interesting parallels right now. I'm thinking about Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine a lot and how we're in a moment of sort of profound social and economic shock. A lot of us aren't really processing what's going on in the world and what this might mean ultimately. Again, I think some people are feeling very dystopian and worried about the rise of authoritarianism or return of fascism. And other people are also taking this moment to think about utopian alternatives, different possibilities. Suddenly, we understand that things like coronavirus or climate change impact us all together as a planet, that we can't just throw up national boundaries and walls and borders and try to protect ourselves from these things. These are things that are going to be equalizers, going to put Rich and poor together, are going to actually throw into stark relief the sickness at the heart of our economies when we live in such an unequal way. And I think that there there is a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, and that gives our political leaders a lot of power because they can use people's fear and anxiety to turn them against themselves, to give up their civil rights, to give up their privacy, to give up democratic norms or liberal norms or just speech or assembly. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about everything that's going on right now. But on the other hand, I really do believe, strongly believe that as artists and as intellectuals and as ordinary people, we can take this opportunity to read, to write, to think, to paint, to compose, to do whatever it is to cook, to clean, I don't know, whatever it is that you feel like you can do to bring order and sense to the world for yourself. It's really important to keep your eye on some positive vision of the future, some belief that things can get better. It might take a lot of time, but you can never give up. And I think that that's one of the things that I really, really love about reading Alexandra Kollontai's work is that even until the very end, even after so many years of disappointments and after everything that happened, you know, in the 30s and World War II, and then going back to the Soviet Union as an older woman and sort of retiring in obscurity, at the end of her life, she still had so much hope and and so much positivity she had so much belief that things were eventually going to get better maybe not right away maybe not even in her lifetime and there had been already so much upheaval and change in her lifetime in the almost 80 years that she lived but she never despaired or if she did despair everybody despairs I mean we're all human for goodness sake we all despair but but she didn't let the despair overcome her and she certainly didn't let the despair overcome her dream of a better future. I think a couple episodes ago I read this wonderful story, uh it was a Christmas story. Uh she's imagining, I think it was called Soon in 50 Years Time and she was imagining the year 1970 when people forgot what money is, money was and what people people completely young people didn't know what capitalism was and It was such a utopian vision. I mean, it seemed very unrealistic, obviously, but it was a dream. And I think it's important to hold on to our dreams and to express our hopes and faith in the future, even when things seem really dark. So that's a really long introduction to the short story, Sisters, which I will just start today. And then obviously I will finish over the next couple of episodes I'm also really hoping to try to convince my daughter, who's trying to finish her last year of high school, online, which is terrible for her, I think, her senior year, trying to convince her to come back on the show and talk about what's going on. But for now, I want to just read some of the words of Kolontai to get back to some semblance of normalcy. So this is Sisters. She had come to see me, as did many other women, for advice and moral support. I had already met her in passing at delegates' conferences. She had a lovely face, with rather melancholy, though observant, eyes. "'I've come to see you because I've nowhere to go,' she announced. "'I've been without a roof over my head for three weeks. "'I've no money, nothing to live on. "'You must find me a job, otherwise there's nothing for it but to go on the streets.' "'But how has this happened?' I asked. "'You used to work, didn't you?' Surely you had a job, or did you get the sack? Yes, I used to work in a dispatch office, but I got the sack over two months ago. It was because of my child. She was ill, you see, which meant I had to miss work. I managed to avoid the sack three times, but finally in August, I lost my job. Within two weeks of that, my child had died, but by then, they wouldn't take me back. She hung her head. And I realized that she was concealing tears. But why did they sack you? I asked her. Weren't you working satisfactorily? Oh, no, that wasn't it. I'm a good worker. They just thought I had no reason to work since my husband makes a good living. He's working at the moment for a government trust company where he's got an important post. He's an executive. So why did you say you have no money and no roof over your head? Have you separated? "'No, we haven't officially separated. "'I've just left him, and I haven't gone back. "'And I'm not going to either, whatever happens.' "'Now she could no longer check her tears. "'Oh, I'm so sorry. "'I haven't cried once all this time. "'I just couldn't. "'But now, when you meet someone who's sympathetic, "'it's more difficult not to... "'But if I just tell you what happened, "'then you'll understand.' She had met her husband in 1917 at the height of the revolution. He was a typesetter at the time, and she was working in the dispatch office of a large publishing house. They were both supporters of the Bolsheviks. Both were committed to the same passionate faith, the same desire to overthrow the power of the exploiters, to build a new and just world. They shared a love of books and were eager to educate themselves. They were caught up in the whirlwind of the revolution. In those October days at their posts and in the heat of battle, amidst the thunder of bullets, they had opened their hearts to one another. However, there had been known time to formalize their liaison and they each continued to live their own lives, meeting only irregularly in the intervals between work. But these meetings had been full of joy and happiness for in those days, they had been true friends. Within a year, she was expecting a baby They had registered their marriage and started to live together. Her baby had not kept her away from work for long, and she had set up a creche in the district. Work, after all, was far more important than family members. Her husband had grumbled occasionally, and with good reason, too, for she did neglect the housework, but then he was never at home either. When she was elected as a delegate to a conference, he was very proud of her. I hope you won't sulk when your lunch is cold, she said. Who cares about my lunch? Just as long as it's not your love for me that grows cold. I'm proud of you. Everyone will see you up there with the people. They both joked about it, and it had seemed that nothing could destroy their love for one another. They were not just man and wife, but true friends, both working for the same goal, with no care for themselves, concerned only with their work. Their child too was a source of great happiness to them, and was healthy and lively. But at some point this had changed. Perhaps it was when her husband had been taken on at the trust company. At first they'd been overjoyed, although life was tough for them. Then suddenly the crush closed down, and she was at her wits end as to what to do with their child while she was working. Her husband took pride in the fact that he could now support his family properly, And suggested she stop work. But she was very reluctant to do this. She'd grown used to talking to her friends at work and enjoyed the work itself. Besides, she was far too independent to give it up. She'd after all been earning her own living since she left school. So she decided to stay at work. At first, there was no great problem about this. Things seemed in some ways easier for them. They moved into a new flat with two rooms and a kitchen, and a girl came in to look after their child. Local political work took her out of the house even more than before, and her husband was also very busy, virtually only coming home to sleep. All right, I'm gonna stop reading here because I took up way too much time with my introductory remarks than I intended to. But in the next episode, I will read much more of this wonderful little short story, which I think really captures some of the challenges that women face after Lenin implemented the new economic policy, which was in many ways a reintroduction of market economics to the young Soviet state. And the importance of again solidarity and I think a lot about solidarity right now because we are facing a situation that really requires us to be kind to each other I've said that before on this podcast to reach out to people to talk to people to take care of our loved ones to be in touch with old friends I think you know there's a phone we've got phones we've got computers we've got FaceTime and Skype and now we've got Zoom and all this wonderful technology. We should try to keep our coalitions and political dreaming going as much as possible. And again, you know, just a final plug here, I think, for the for the arts, for for the value of writing and thinking and reading and not giving in to despair. We have to keep thinking that another world is possible because it is we've seen it in the past and yes things could get really bad but things could also get really good and so with that i'll just sign off i hope to maybe meet some of you on the zoom call on april 6th for the quarantine book club and until then or until the next episode keep up the good fight